What do you want? Abu, Bakar, al-Baghdadi is dead. A terrorist is responsible for the murder of thousands. This is not a method. This is an historic day. Iran alive. Victim. This is a provocation. French Accent, your podcast about Middle East, terrorism and intelligence with your host, Antoine Mariotti. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this new episode of French Accent. My guest today has served six U.S. administrations, both Republicans and Democrats, working extensively on Middle East issues and especially Arab-Israeli negotiations. He's now a senior fellow at Carnegie and wrote a few books, five, including The End of Greatness, Why American Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. His name is Aaron David Miller. Aaron, bonjour. Nice to see you, Antoine. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, as I said, you worked for years on the Middle East peace negotiations. Um, I was wondering, when you started working on this issue, did you have a real hope at this time uh, peace will be possible between Israelis, Palestinians, Syrians, and let's dream a bit more with Iran and Lebanon? Um, and today, some years later, do you still have, if you ever had, Some hope it can happen one day. You know, my, you know, Churchill famously said that people who don't change their minds change nothing. So I, I started out as an intelligence analyst, uh, working at the Department of State on Lebanon and the Palestinians. There, in the in the mid '80s, actually early '80s, things looked very grim. So I I would I would title myself then Doctor No because I dealt with probabilities, not possibilities. I was charged with uh, providing analysis to the Secretary of State, not so much on why things could happen, but more often than not why they couldn't. And it was justified by the realities. I mean, I, I remember well in 1982, Israel's invasion of Lebanon um, and the faint hopes for peace that existed during the Reagan administration. Uh, a plan which no one, including the president, ever believed would be accepted uh, by the Israelis or, frankly, by anyone else. So in the beginning, I would say when I started as an intelligence analyst historian, my views were very, very skeptical. But uh, things began to evolve and change in the late 80s when I had an opportunity to work on uh, Secretary of State James Baker's policy planning staff, because reality began to change. The Bush 41 and Baker administration ended up taking advantage of certain trends in the region, uh, primarily triggered by Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. You know, all of the breakthroughs in the Arab-Israeli conflict have not been preceded, if you trace their origins, to uh, diplomatic breakthroughs, they were initially triggered by conflict and war. From 1973, uh, during the October War, to the First Intifada, which ultimately would produce the Madrid process and then Oslo, um, and even Israel's uh, peace treaty with Jordan, which was derivative of the Oslo breakthrough, which was in itself 
uh, triggered by fundamental change on the ground when the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin realized that there was no military solution to the Palestinian problem. So Saddam invades Kuwait and Bush 41 basically says that that is not going to stand. We have allies, we have interests. And in the wake of um, Saddam's invasion, as you know, the United States mounted a major diplomatic and military effort, pushing Saddam out of Kuwait, making a decision at the time, the correct one, not to pursue uh, a military strategy to the gates of Baghdad, a lesson which uh, um, George W. Bush uh, uh, did not learn from either Bush 41 or Baker. Um, but it opened opportunities. And I watched and helped James Baker for nine months from March of 91 through the October uh, gathering in Madrid. I watched what could actually be possible when regional conditions were uh, fortuitous and when you had a president of the United States and a secretary of state that knew how to deal with diplomacy and power. They knew how to apply both honey and vinegar. And in any negotiation, I've learned uh, with the Arabs and the Israelis, both incentives and disincentives are required. So during that period, and for the next 15 years, I went from being Dr. No, it can't happen, to Dr. Yes, it can happen. And I remember sitting on the lawn at the White House uh, on September 13th, watching the Oslo signing, thinking um, at the time, uh, I thought correctly, that we had reached a point of no return, that the trends set into motion were somehow irreversible and nobody could go back. Well, that was a fundamental mistake and misjudgment on my part, because uh, during the Clinton administration, which culminated in the summit, as you know, in July of 2000 at Camp David, uh, which was the last serious effort to broker a um, conflict-ending solution between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, that was followed by the Second Intifada, which was followed by a series of developments from which the Israeli-Palestinian negotiating process never recovered. So I went from Dr. No to Dr. Yes, to where I am now, which is Dr. Maybe, okay? Dr. Maybe, I, I have two grown children, so I cannot rule out for their sake and for the sake of Israelis and Palestinians that there can never be a final peace deal. I don't have the right to do that. I occupy a tiny space for a very short period of time on this planet. And to say never, I think is wrong. It's more, it's a moral abdication of responsibility. However, however, I refuse any longer to entertain the illusions, the illusions, many of which I had while I was working on uh, promoting Arab-Israeli negotiations. So I have come, come to the conclusion that if there were three things in place we could seriously consider the real possibility of an Israeli-Palestinian agreement. We'll talk about the Abraham Accords later, I'm sure. Number one is you need leaders 
on both sides who are masters of their political houses, not prisoners of their ideologies or their politics. Without leadership, you have nothing. And we do not have that leadership today on either side of the line. Second, you need ownership. Israelis and Palestinians need to care more about their negotiation than any outside party, whether it's the US, the UN, the French, the Russians. Every breakthrough in this conflict was done without the participation of the United States, everyone. And as a consequence, you begin to understand that when Israelis and Palestinians make decisions based on their own needs and the needs of their partners, without external prompting, without pressure, without being bribed, you get a real process that has traction. So you need leadership, you need ownership, and finally, you need an, out, an outside mediator, a third party that understands what to do if you have a real opportunity uh, to reach an agreement. All those three things, leadership, ownership, effective, I would argue, American mediation, all of these things are missing. So there's no sense in even talking about this problem unless two of the three things I'd want all three in place, but I'd settle for two of three um, were in place, and they're not. And I think it's it's hard for me to envision now how you would get those three or even two of the three things um, to pertain to the current situation. You mentioned Oslo, um, which was, of course, an historic step, unfortunately, not enough. Um, do you remember, I think it was right after Oslo, uh, the message your father sent to the President Clinton's peace team? Martin Indyk talked about it in his book, Innocent Abroad. And he said, let, let me read it for you. Um, These two issues, security and settlements, were structural flaws in the Oslo framework and in all the agreements that flowed from it. But at the time, our peace team barely had a chance to study the document. When Perez, Shimon Perez, presented the agreement to Christopher and Ross at Point Mugu, it had already been initiated. The Israelis and Palestinians had directly negotiated an agreement to end their conflict, something Clinton had explicitly called on them to do. Who were we to second-guess them? Our role was to support the effort amidst all the joy of the occasion that new reality was dawning on us, and it was captured in a message to the members of Clinton's peace team from Aaron Miller's father. Remember, he warned us, when you dance with a bear, you can never let go. Yeah, that's my father. Actually, my father used that expression um, many times, and he actually used it uh, with Rabin. Um, they were friends. Rabin loved that expression. Uh, once you start dancing with a bear, you can never let go. What is the import? What does that actually mean? Well, essentially, it means that if you get yourself into a situation in which there's no exit, Uh, and that situation may be flawed or imperfect, you really have a very difficult choice to make. You can continue to dance with the bear knowing that the prospects of success are pretty limited, or you can let go and suffer the consequences. So, you know, 
what was Oslo? Oslo was a heroic effort by a, a group of a uh, small group of is of Israelis and Palestinians to create uh, uh, an an exit from a situation that had no real precedent in modern history. That is to say, Palestinians were trying to negotiate their way out of an occupation and build institutions at the same time. And the Israelis, who were not prepared at the time to define a political horizon as to where that exit would lead, created a situation for themselves in which um, the Palestinian uh, participants in the process were kind of put on probation. So it was an interim period that if in fact both parties could prove themselves to the other without a, uh, a timeline or an end game of where this was all going. No one talks about two states. Palestinians may have, but that it was a, a concept that had not yet taken root politically in 1993 in the Israeli center, let alone uh, on the Israeli right. So the factors that allowed Oslo to um, be created could simply not be sustained. You had the perverse relationship between the occupier and the occupied, each of them playing their predictive roles, which is extremely difficult to break. You had no, no real timelines, and you had no sense of monitoring by a third party. The Israelis and frankly, the Palestinians both did not want us involved in these negotiations. During the Madrid process, which had, I think, a, um, 10 rounds of negotiations, uh, which provided a sort of cover for Oslo, I, I distinctly remember Rabin referring to a document that Dan Kurtzer, who was the former ambassador to Israel, had, uh, and we had written for the Madrid negotiations, Rabin called it the worst document he had ever seen. Um, and nor were the Palestinians, knowing how close we were to the Israelis, eager to involve us in the negotiations either. So you had a situation where the two sides were on their own. With Rabin's murder in November of, of 95, I remember coming back uh, from his funeral and thinking to myself, we've now entered uh, a period uh, in which it is going to be almost impossible to keep the Oslo process alive. And yet I had the same, had the additional feeling that we must do it, if only to keep the basic structure of Oslo in place. What, what we feared in the end would be a collapse. And we spent the last three years of the Clinton administration, 96 to 99, with several interim agreements, which people criticized rightly. Band-Aids on a mortal wound a process without an objective. All of that was probably correct, but we argued that we had to at least keep the structure al alive and avoid what eventually came to be, 
which was a fundamental collapse in confrontation and violence um, driven by the Second Intifada, from which I might add, Antoine, the Israeli-Palestinian relationship. It's going to be 22 years this July since those 13 or 14 fateful days at Camp David. The impact of those failed negotiations and the intifada that followed in the fall, Israelis and Palestinians have not yet recovered from that. So, uh, you know, I, I, my own view again comes back to ownership. I don't care how much an external party to a negotiation wants the negotiation to succeed. Um, it just doesn't compute. Great powers, you know, the Middle East is littered with the remains of great powers who wrongly believe they could impose their will on smaller ones. And for so many reasons, our own domestic politics, a different set of priorities, which, which makes the pursuit of Arab-Israeli peace in many respects episodic or discretionary. Uh, our own, I said our own domestic politics and the nature of our relationship with Israel, which is a critical piece of this puzzle, which, and I've said this many times, which prevents us in many ways from being, forget an honest broker, in none of the negotiations that we've participated in, even the ones we succeeded, Jimmy Carter, for example, at Camp David and the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. That was a phenomenal success. I, I'm not sure I could think of a, of a single act by an American president in a negotiation after the 1979 peace treaty was negotiated and implemented that is, was more consequential and enduring than that peace treaty, even though it's flawed. Um, my point is, even in that circumstance, Carter support came to understand that he would not sacrifice the prospects of historic breakthrough between Israelis and Egyptians on behalf of the Palestinian issue. We played to Israel's views on that issue. So even when we succeeded, we were never what I call, what the Arabs would call, or the Palestinians would call, an honest broker. We can be an effective broker, and there's a difference between the two. And, and that's I exactly what I was going to recognize. My colleagues, many of my colleagues do not agree with me on this point. And I have been forever tarred, I might add, with the phrase, since I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in 2005, which basically described our role in the Clinton administration as Israel's lawyer. This is exactly what I was going to talk to you about this op-ed in 2005, because you said basically that um, the U.S. didn't think about what was needed to reach peace between Israelis and Palestinians, but focused too much on what was acceptable for Israel. Uh, yeah. Uh, and again, uh, my colleagues who I love and respect do not agree with me on this point. But that term, Israel's lawyer, that's not my term. That term is in Kissinger's memoirs. And in those memoirs, he basically said that that's what the Israelis wanted him to do. And to some extent, even though he was very tough on them, 
He also took their part in many aspects of the disengagement negotiations, the three that he helped broker between two between Israel and Egypt and one between Israel and Syria. So no, I don't, I don't, um, if honest broker means the following, that you have uh, a line. On one end of the line, you have Israeli needs and requirements. On the other end of the line, you have Palestinian needs and requirements. If an honest broker, if that role means that you strictly find the balance in between the two, then we're really not an honest broker. Who can be this honest broker? I, I mean, I, I, in many respects, we skew to the Israeli, Israeli needs and requirements when it comes to security. For example, um, one of the six issues that needs to be resolved in any permanent status negotiation is the, is the issue of territory. How large is the putative Palestinian state going to be? What percentage of the territory? An honest broker might say, well, you know, I mean, Israelis captured this territory illegally, regardless of the origins of the war. So 100% of it must return to the Palestinians. It's logical. Sadat got 100% of Sinai. And the dismantlement of every settlement in, in, in Sinai. Um, why shouldn't the Palestinians get 100% of the West Bank? Well, because the Israelis have certain political needs which require a different sort of approach. It's 100% of the West Bank to the Palestinians minus X. And we've been negotiating. What is the X? Is the X 3%? Is it 6%? Is it 8%? Is it two and a half percent, which which is uh, a figure that Pal uh, Abbas used in his proposals? So, you know, in that respect, we 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 skewed and operated on uh, from an Israeli script, at least <laughs> a script that was endorsed by uh, several Israeli prime ministers, not all Israeli prime ministers, but that. We're kind of having a, a a discussion on on this whole subject, which is tethered, untethered from reality, because the prospects for a nego serious negotiation between Israelis and Palestinians using any of these concepts, six core issues, uh, borders, security, refugees, Jerusalem, recognition of Israel as the as the nation state of the Jews, which the Israelis, which is now on the table, an end of all conflict and claims. The gaps between Israelis and Palestinians on those six issues are enormous. They cannot be bridged by the Bennett government and the Palestinian Authority. And I'm I'm not entirely persuaded because we we didn't do it when we had a prime minister who was much more forthcoming, uh, Ehud Barak, or even Ehud Olmert. Uh, and a Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat, who had the moral and political authority to actually conclude an agreement. I think Abbas lacks both right now. And he also he also lacks electoral authority. He's serving the, what, 15th year of a four-year term? So 
I, I, again, I, uh, I'm happy to engage in this discussion on what are the prospects for an Israeli-Palestinian agreement, but any serious engagement would have to take these the three factors that I identified. You need them, and we don't have them, I, and we can't create them. And you just mentioned Mahmoud Abbas, uh, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, was my guest in French accent a few months ago. And he told me he was sure peace was a possibility with Mahmoud Abbas, that himself was quite close to reach um, a deal with him. Do you think Olmert is wrong on this? I think what Olmert was willing to accept in those discussions might have been a basis for an agreement. But the, the problem is it's not just a question of finding clever fixes for the six issues I've identified. It's a question of the political will and the constituencies that need to be brought along and whether or not you have the external support that will be required to make such a deal. I, I don't see how on the Palestine, look, you, you have the encumbering problems of Israeli practices in the territories. Settlement activity, land confiscation, housing demolitions. There's very little confidence between Israelis and Palestinians. On the Palestinian side, you have a fundamental problem for which right now there's no solution. And that is this, the Palestinian national movement united, relatively speaking, under Yasser Arafat, has now come to resemble, my phrase is Noah's Ark. There are two of everything. There are two statelets, one in Gaza, one in the West Bank. There are two sets of security services, Hamas and Fatah. There are two sets of patrons. There are two visions of where Palestine is and what it's supposed to be. You cannot, you, this, won't, this won't work. The, one of the, I, I think one of the biggest factors that is not identified enough is what happens when a polity loses control over the monopoly of violence within its own society. And I'm not talking about, I mean, there are 300 million guns in this country. All right. We have, we have mass shootings in this country, but what I'm talking about are armed movements that challenge the control of the state factions that are prepared that actually control territory in the putative state of Palestine, which have a different vision of where the state should be and what it should be. You can't have a negotiating process with half of the Palestinian national movement. That only leaves a couple different choices. In most revolutionary situations, whether it's Algeria or in Vietnam, you had a, law, a night of the long knives in which the dominant uh, faction imposed its will by force to unify a national movement. If you can't, and I'm not suggesting this for a minute, it's first of all, it's out of the question. Palestinian authorities are strong enough, and I'm not arguing they should do it by no means. Then you, maybe you do it through diplomatic means, but how many, how many efforts have there been to restore PLO unity? How many sets of negotiations? I, I don't know if we're in double digits yet, but we're very close. So it, it's very hard to imagine, unless you have one gun, one authority, 
and one negotiating position. Who speaks for the Palestinians? No, it's true. Unfortunately, it's true. And I, I lived there for three years. And when you are in the West Bank and when you are in the, in the Gaza Strip, it's two com complete different situations, different territories, different um, politics, different nearly way of lives, we can say. Um, and it's more and more divided. So, uh, but you, you mentioned the Abraham Accords. Um, uh, for a long time, we heard they will not have any peace uh, with Arabs without peace with Palestinians. And Netanyahu pushed very hard to to put an end to this, to this doctrine. Um, do you think the Abraham Accords can help move toward peace between Israelis and Palestinians? Or is it the end of the Arab solidarity with Palestinians? You know, I've, I've looked at this because I, I, I remember I, I had a couple of meetings with Jared Kushner earlier in the Trump administration. He wanted my views uh, on these matters, and he made it very clear that the Trump administration was not interested in the two-state solution. It was inter he was interested in, these are my words, but it was his concept, the 22-state solution, that they would pursue a situation, a, a an objective which would um, facilitate peace treaties, agreements, relationships between Israel and the Arab states, and not Arab states with which Israel shared contiguous borders. I mean, after all, Israel has a peace treaty with Jordan and, Le and, uh, and Egypt. Uh, they weren't talking about Israel, Lebanon, Israel, Syria. They were talking about the Gulf uh, for any number of reasons, which we don't need to go into. Um, and I had never believed um, although I came to believe well before the Abraham Accords were signed, uh, I had a piece, I think, in the Washington Post in 2018, which argued that some of the factors that had prevented these sorts of relationships from developing were now present. That uh, a rising Iran uh, and the Arab Spring uh, combined with frustration with the Palestinian issue, were pushing Israel and the Gulf states, particularly the Emiratis and the Israelis, uh, Bahrainis and the Qataris, um, and even the Saudis, closer together. What the Trump administration ended up doing was literally, um, single-mindedly, cultivating relationships with the Gulf states, creating incentives, which took uh, advantage of the changing realities in the region, pursuing a very pro-Israel policy and a very anti-Iran policy, which more or less coincided with the view from Saudi Arabia, not so much the Emirates, were in a much different situation. And they also acquiesced, as you know, in a series of reckless and ruthless policies pursued by Mohammed bin Salman, the would-be king and someday king of Saudi Arabia. All of this combined to create a measure of traction, uh, which enabled the Trump administration to broker these agreements. Now, I've looked, I've looked far and wide, tried to analyze how in essence, the Abraham Accords can be used to facilitate a meaningful environment which could lead to an Israeli-Palestinian negotiation and agreement. I cannot 
I, I come up empty. The honest analysis leads to paralysis because it's hard to imagine how when you have a situation in which the Abraham Accords has become the new peace process, it's they in many respects have um, ameliorated the urgency that people attach to a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian problem. After all, if the Arab world is reconciling itself with Israel at a very rapid rate, although you have, you've got the Moroccans, the Bahrainis, Sudan is now questionable given political events there, the Emiratis, Saudis, I think not, certainly not now, um, then why focus on the Israeli-Palestinian issue? The Israelis are very, or at least this Israeli government is quite happy with the focus on Israel and the Arab states. This weekend, I think the president of Israel is due to make a trip to the Emirates. So I don't see how you use the Abraham Accords to leverage an agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. Some argued with enough money, you could buy the Palestinians off and the Gulf states could provide it. I don't buy that. Some argued that the Palestinians are now so weak and so backed into a corner that they'll have no choice but to concede. I don't buy that either. But one thing has happened, and that is quite, quite apart from what I, I would have thought. In the last 10 years, instead of becoming a pariah, Israel now enjoys wider diplomatic representation and support in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. There's talk now of formal, of formal contacts between Israel and Indonesia. Israel has uh, good relations with all five members of the permanent members of the Security Council. And the ultimate, the ultimate data point is the fact that the region, which had pledged itself in the Arab Peace Initiative of 2002, not to reconcile with Israel until the, there was satisfaction in the Palestinian issue, has now divided itself. Some are actually willing to undertake contact. So all of this talk that Israel, because of its settlement policies, because of its harsh treatment of Palestinians, would somehow become an outlier this is what the left in Israel believed. This is what the left in America believed, but it hasn't happened. The Palestinian issue, and again, I, I don't wanna lose sight of the fact that you could have an explosion there, let's be clear. But the Palestinian issue has become a local issue. And this other is clearly not- Other than Israelis and Palestinians, you could argue, other than Jordan, it, it just seemed to, and again, I don't want to be misunderstood here. It's still, this issue still carries the potential uh, and the explosiveness to bring it back to some sort of center stage. But I am just amazed at the degree to which the world 
I don't think there's a single country of the 193 that sit in the UN that is prepared to make the redemption of Palestine a central feature of its foreign policy. Not the Arabs any longer, not the Europeans any longer, not China. I mean, Netanyahu had more than a dozen meetings with uh, Vladimir Putin. The Israelis and the Russians are helping to ameliorate in Syria the prospects of an Israeli-Iranian clash. Bennett just gave an interview to, to the Israeli paper Haaretz in which he actually referred to Putin and Russia as their, as their northern neighbor. Their northern neighbor. So, you know, I'm thinking... I'm not gloating. All I'm trying to, to do is understand why the forsaking of the Palestinian issue seems to have gained traction everywhere. Maybe it's not the act of forsaking. There's still tremendous support in the world, but it's a kind of acquiescence and an exhaustion I can't ex I can't explain it. This is clearly not a priority anymore for the White House, by the way. A few weeks before the election, um, Robert Malley told me in an interview that he was sure Joe Biden, if elected, and he was, uh, would rebalance a bit the situation um, with money for Palestinians, for example, this kind of thing. Uh, but he will not get involved too much. Uh, it appears he was right. Why do you think the White House do not want to get involved anymore. You mentioned it a few minutes ago, a few seconds ago, but it's it's clearly not a, an important topic for the White House or the State Department today. Yeah, because the if Joe Biden were here with us today on this podcast, here's what he would say to you. He'd say, I hope you will come. Well, if he were here, he would say, Antoine, listen to me, listen very carefully. There is no single foreign policy issue out there or even combination of issues that is more important, more dangerous, more destructive to this republic and my presidency than the three or four internal challenges we face at home. And if there is no foreign policy issue, including climate and China, that is more important than what's happening in America today and more concerning And, and I'm, I am very concerned, then what do you think Joe Biden would say about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is A, not ready for prime time, number one. Number two, politically volatile for him. Why is it politically volatile? Because you have a Republican party now. And remember, in, in about nine months from now, <laughs> you're going to have a midterm election which if you believe the, the numbers, it, since 1946, the average loss for an incumbent president's party in the first midterms, the average loss is 25 seats. So it's volatile for him because you have a Republican party that's just waiting for him to pressure Israel because it is the party of Trump has now set itself up as the go-to party when it comes to Israel. 
The Democrats are divided between traditionalists and mainstream Democrats who are prepared for moderate criticism of Israel, but who are very supportive. And the progressives that want to push Biden to be tougher on Israel. So he doesn't want to get in the middle of this. And he's busy. And right now, as you and I are talking, you know, all of a sudden, Vladimir Putin has put himself much to the dismay of Biden, who wanted to somehow park the U.S.-Russian relationship. Vladimir Putin, Putin has put himself in the middle of the White House schedule every single day now for almost three weeks with no sense of what's coming. So there's no way. Now, May, the May conflict reminded Biden that this issue is still very volatile. So he has a stake in keeping things as calm as possible, but not in pushing anything that would put him in a politically viable, uh, un unviable position, non-viable position, and put Bennett in a bad position too. Remember what is the organizing principle of the Bennett coalition? There's only one organizing principle. It's do nothing that will allow Benjamin Netanyahu to return to power. So Biden, Biden will not be interested in this issue unless the Israelis and Palestinians give him a reason to be interested. And there are only two ways for them to do that. Number one, they rise to some new occasion with some diplomatic breakthrough that requires U.S. support, or alternatively, they engage in some conflict that goes beyond what we've seen, both quantitatively and qualitatively, which forces the United States to get involved. Otherwise, he's too busy. And I listened to, to your podcast, Carnegie Connects, with Brett McGurk a few days ago, and, and you, you talked with him and said, uh, governing is about choosing, and there is this endless debate, do the United States do too much or not enough? And what is your point of view about this? Well, I, look, I have deep, deep, deep concerns about the future of the American Republic. And those concerns do not relate to whether or not there's a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. I mean, I devoted most of my professional life to a, a peace agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. I care deeply about it, but I care much more about the future direction of, of the American Republic. And it is very fraught. So if you ask me, I voted for Democrats and Republicans. I work for Democrats and Republicans. I voted for Joe Biden. And if he runs again, I'll vote vote for I'll vote for him again. I don't want him to do anything abroad that makes him more vulnerable uh, and decreases his chances of being reelected. I mean, I'll say it flat out: governing is about choosing. Life is about choosing. You know, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, quipped about Abraham Lincoln that Lincoln died a sad man. Why did Lincoln die a sad man? FDR said because he couldn't have everything. Well, you know, you don't get everything. And what is most important 
to me right now is it's I've devoted most of my professional life to foreign policy. That that takes a back seat to what's happening here. And again, I don't want Biden to overextend himself. I don't want him to waste political capital and make himself vulnerable. It makes no sense. So as a consequence, if you said to me, Aaron, there's a real opportunity. If Biden is prepared to engage seriously, and I mean with both honey and vinegar, honey and vinegar, you don't, no one's gonna plant a tree in your honor if you if you help the Israelis and the Palestinians broker a peace agreement. And a lot of people are gonna be mad at you along the way. But if you said to Antoine, if you said to me, there's a real chance now, and if I had five minutes with the president, I'd tell him if there is such a chance, then take it. Take it. But there is no such chance. And as a consequence, I don't want him pursuing a peace plan which is going to fail. Because you know why? The world's most compelling ideology, sadly, is not communism. It's not nationalism. It's probably not even capitalism. It's success. When you succeed, people flock to your side. You have constituents, you have power. When you have fail, when you fail repeatedly, the opposite happens. We don't need any more failures. Certainly, if 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 there's almost zero chance of succeeding. Yeah, and you said the U.S. need to take this back seat um, on Middle East issues. But if we broaden a bit the question uh, on foreign policy, but. Um, It also gives space to Russia, for example. Joe Biden also have to face Russia, who is not an easy partner. Moscow is more and more active in many places. Uh, there is, of course, the Ukraine crisis, uh, but Russia also gained more importance in the Middle East the past decade, thanks to its involvement in the Syrian war. And we heard sometimes um, Gulf countries, for example, um, said they see Russia as a more reliable partner than the U.S. because they can disagree on Syria, for example, but they don't change their mind. While from Obama to Trump and to Biden, it changed many times on Iran, for example, or on Syria. That's one of the in, in, inevitable realities about a democratic polity. I mean, <laughs> it's hard for it's hard for us to create a anything that looks like a generational policy. We did during the Cold War, and some of it was problematic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's one of my concerns is continuity, because let's be clear, time is a very important variable here. Most of these countries in the region have, most of the leaders have seen a good many American presidents come and go. Um, and, um, we think in terms of administration time, we need to shift our thinking, certainly with respect to Arab Israeli peace and think about the generational aspects of this problem, because 
It's already been a generation since Camp David. It's been 20 years since the last serious effort to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's a generation, 20 years. And uh, I can't say when there'll be another opportunity. So um, I, I think in time, I'm trained as a historian, even though I never really practiced or taught um, at a university, but thinking in time is very important. I talked about Russia, um, but you have also other actors, other countries who want to be more involved in foreign policy. I think about Turkey, about China also. Uh, we saw that with Syria. We can also talk about their activities in Africa, for example, where Russia also is more and more active too. Um, what is your point of view on those three countries, Russia, Turkey, China, getting more and more involved Uh, in, in foreign policy, while U.S. are, are taking this more and more than this seat back? Yeah, I th look, we live in a multipolar world. The days of America, one of my former bosses, Madeleine Albright, borrowed a phrase from President Clinton and described the U.S. as an indispensable power. Well, one of your former French presidents, Charles de Gaulle, said that the cemeteries of France are filled with indispensable people. Right. So we're not, we can't be an indispensable power. It's a multipolar world. Other po powers are rising, some large, some small. Many have the capacity to assert their power. Iran, North Korea, China, Russia. In the Middle East, um, there's no doubt that Chinese and Russians have made inroads. No doubt. And there's also no doubt that they have a certain amount of tactical flexibility that we don't. I mean, after all, China can deal with China deals with everybody, with everybody, and so does uh, like Iran, for example, and so does Russia. That, to a certain degree, is a disadvantage to the United States. But I don't believe that either Russia or China uh, will be viewed as a reliable security partner to the states in the region with which we have cooperated and done business over the last 40 years. Yeah, the Russians are selling more military equipment to Egypt. And yet, if Sisi had to, despite the tensions in the Egyptian-US relationship over human rights, I think if Sisi, because of this relationship with Israel and uh, our own military assistance and aid, I, I don't think Sisi would ever make a choice, conscious choice, To prefer, China, uh, to prefer either China or Russia over the United States. Saudi Arabia is the same thing. They're all hedging. They're hedging their bets. The Chinese, you know, King Salman visited Russia, the first, I think, Saudi king ever to do so. Um, and the Chinese and, and, and Iran are pursuing a relationship in large measure because the Iranians are hedging and need Chinese and Russian support against the United States. But for most of the others, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi, Qatar, we have a, a critically important military base at Al-Udaid, Al-Dhafra and the UAE, the Emirates. Um, I think our, our commitments are still viewed uh, as reliable. Um, Turkey has its own problems with Russia. And you know that the sale of drones now to the Ukrainian military 
uh, if, if in fact there is a, a conflict and, and Putin uh, um, um, pushes some sort of military intervention, that's going to be a problem for the Russians and the Turks because the Turkish economy is also very dependent on Russia. So, um, but then again, Turkey's a member of NATO. So I, 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 I would not push back on the fact that as a consequence of our decision, and Brett McGurk wouldn't use the word deprioritize, but I, I would. Um, there is a clear sense that matters to the East are much more important than, than the Middle East, that Afghanistan or, and Iraq have been drains um, and sacrifices by the United States in, in Iraq and Afghanistan have not been worth the gains that we have made. We are also, as the world's largest producer of hydro hydrocarbons, weaning ourselves off of Arab hydrocarbons, although the rest of the world is not. And above all, though, above all, the problems that beset these, this region, bad governance, lack of respect for human rights, extractive leaders, lack of transparency, um, tremendous inequality, all of those problems are internal. They're beyond the capacity of any external power. China, Russia, or the United States to resolve. So this region is going to be very unsettled for years to come. And it is no bargain either for China and Russia to get involved, deeply involved, and undertake commitments that they will that they may find very encumbering, other than the commercial and economic commitments that they've undertaken. Yeah, they can China can talk to everyone, but if Iran, if you, you end up with a security problem in the Gulf, um, the Saudis and the Emirates are going to look to the United States first, not to China and not to Russia. Do you think a conflict in Ukraine can have any impact on Israel? There was this article recently on Aretz, the Israeli newspaper, saying, reminding that Israel needs a stronger alliance with the U.S., but also a strategic partnership with Russia in neighboring Syria. Uh, it was Anshul Pfeffer, who I read all right. the time. It was a very good piece that the Israelis would like to sit this out and, and they hope they can. If you end up with a massive Russian, incur massive Russian incursion into Ukraine, it's going to be very hard for the Israelis not to take sides. Um, but I don't think that's where, I don't think that's where, they're, where we're going on Ukraine. So I think the Israelis will probably come out of this with their relations with both the United States and Russia pretty much intact. Remember, Ben-Gurion from the beginning thought Israel should be, in many respects, non-aligned. And Russia was the second country, I believe, to extend de facto recognition uh, to the state of Israel. So there's a history there, and I, I think it's been, on balance, a very beneficial relationship for the Israelis. And China, too. Oh. We, we, the United States has major concerns about Chinese penetration into in certain Israeli tech sectors and uh, infrastructure projects.
Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Antoine, it was a great pleasure. How, how fast the time went by uh, in talking <laughs> to you too. You asked the right questions and you keep at least one step ahead of the interviewee, which is very important. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please share this episode on social medias if you liked it. Have a nice day and see you next time for a new episode of French Accent. Take care. This was French Accent. Listen to our previous episodes and do not miss the next ones on FrenchAccentPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram.